Hello, this is Jesse Liberty, and this is yet another podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have Valero de Sanctis. I'm going to ask him if I pronounced his name correctly. How are you? Fine, thanks. Did I say your name right? Absolutely. Excellent. Valero is the author of Building Web APIs with ASP.NET Core from Manning, which is so far my favorite book on building web APIs, which we'll talk about. He's also written other books, which I know he's written for Pact, uh, one on Angular, perhaps a couple others. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, it's the fifth installment of the series. Wow. Okay. What I would like to do today is focus a lot on uh, building web APIs with ASP.NET Core and talk about some of the technology and the differences and what you cover in the book. I know that you're uh, anticipating another edition, if I'm right, in a year or two, but right now this one is quite up to date, as far as I can tell, and uh, works with, this was written with .NET 7 or 6? It, is with a, a, it has been written with .NET 6, which mm -hmm. was the most recent one at the time, but is perfectly compatible with .NET 7, no problem. And the code base, which is on GitHub, is uh, also updated to be used with uh, .NET 7. So the reader can use .NET 6 or 7 without problem. Okay, great. I'll tell you briefly, personally, that I spent the past six years building uh, mobile applications, and I just switched within the same company to doing nothing but building APIs. So this is, this is near and dear to my heart. This has been extremely helpful to me, and I'm going to ask you some fundamental questions as we go along, Let, let's start with, um, for, for folks who are new to this, maybe have just a hazy concept. Can you define quickly what an API is, what it does, why we care? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, actually the first chapter of the book, which uh, because I like to start all my books with a um, holistic explanation on what we are talking about to clarify the context to the reader. So. In a nutshell, everything is made of data nowadays. You mentioned uh, mobile, mobile application. Every mobile application needs data unless it's uh, completely working within the device, which is uh, mm, almost uh, never happens now, nowadays because they need data from the outside, from the web, from uh, servers, databases, open API around the world, big data. So it's basically a client who is fetching data from the outside. The web API is the engine with fee which feeds this data to the client, in this case, the mobile application, using a standardized interface, most commonly uh, REST. Yes. And I want to talk about REST and its alternatives, but not, not yet. We're going to assume uh, REST for most of the conversation because I believe that's by far the most common way to do APIs. And briefly, REST allows you to interact with the API using the standard HTTP verbs of get and put and uh, <clears throat> post and so forth. Uh, fair enough, a simplification of REST? Absolutely, we are okay. very correct. Uh, the two uh, the two types that you talk about uh, APIs that you can build with ASP.NET Core are controller-based and minimal. 
And can you talk a little bit about the difference between them and when you would want to use one and when the other? Absolutely. Uh, the controller-based approach uh, has been introduced by ASP.NET since the beginning of the introduction of the MVP um, architecture that is widely used to build web application and web APIs. It's basically a way to distinguish between the three different aspects uh, that, that uh, makes a typical web application. The data layer, the presentation layer, and the, en the um, uh, core engine that uh, pulls the data from the database and, present and uh, prepare it to present to the uh, end user. Uh, the controller uh, plays that role. So basically, when we build a web API using the controller-based approach, we create those controller that uh, um, uh, receive, uh, intercept the uh, HTTP call coming from the client and uh, use the uh, input data coming from maybe the get parameters if we are using the get method or the post parameter if we are using the post method and act accordingly, uh, translating those data into uh, strongly typed objects and use this data to uh, query the database using um, or, or, or AM or other technologies and prepare the data which is then passed to the views. In the case of the web API, there is no concept of views because the controller just outputs raw uh, JSON in case of REST or XML in case of SOAP data. So basically, the output is a, that standardized uh, um, uh, structure uh, which I was talking about early on. And this is the controller-based approach. Uh, of course, we um, the, the benefits of uh, this approach is that we are using a proven way of building web applications, which can be used in both for writing websites, web applications, or web APIs, because the controller can output a view or can output raw data, such uh, uh, like, like we just uh, uh, said. Um, so it's a standardized way to do things. However, since uh, we know that uh, ASP.NET uh, has a modular approach, we need to uh, um, include the whole controller logic to the web application. So we need to support everything that relies around the controller class or the base controller class, uh, which can be heavy in terms uh, if we are uh, building a microservice and we aim to keep it uh, um, as much dry as we can, so less code as possible, uh, 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 as less code as, as, as possible, and uh, uh, as lightweight as possible, as much lightweight as possible, we need to simplify this structure. Maybe we don't need uh, much control, um, a, a lot of controllers. Maybe we just need a couple of endpoints to receive data from. This is why uh, the technicians, uh, the Microsoft technicians working uh, on the ASP.NET project created the minimal API approach, which is a, a easier and most streamlined way to handle that uh, um, HTTP uh, co uh, incoming calls 
not using a controller, but directly in the uh, in the program.cs uh, file of the application. So we are basically uh, using the the framework at its core to uh, get receive uh, interpret that incoming data and output uh, um, the the outcome without having to use the controller class. So basically, it's a way to have a uh, less code and a less complex architecture within the application. This is the most uh, significant advantage of uh, minimal APIs. So nothing completely new, just a different and maybe simpler way to perform the same stuff we can do with the controllers. So if you have the option of a minimal API, when would you choose not to use that and instead use the controller? Yeah. That's a good, a good question. We analyzed the pros, but not the cons. The problem of minimal APIs uh, raise uh, when uh, the application become more complex. When we um, separating the concerns and the concept, the various concepts uh, of the web application becomes relevant. So let's say we have a very complex API, if we are talking about a web API which we are, uh, maybe we would like to have separate classes to handle those uh, endpoints. Um, or we have a lot of service we need to inject in, inside the um, HTTP lifecycle of the app. Uh, we need, we, we, um, using the controller can be uh, more useful for having a um, well-prepared code and avoid the most the common pitfalls that can happen to a programmer when there is a very bunch, uh, high, very relevant amount of code within a single file. Of course, we can split the file in various uh, ways. We can program minimal APIs in separate files. We can use partial classes. We can use a lot of things to achieve the same um, uh, outcome of using controllers. But the controller class has been specifically built to uh, take advantage of uh, this type of uh, um, uh, code base. And so uh, it's uh, the natural way of using it. It, uh, it is uh, much more convenient, at least from my point of view, uh, than the minimal API, which has been specifically built to serve very fast, very easy, very short, in terms of written code, uh, pieces of uh, application to um, quickly respond to, um, to um, easy-to-handle calls. This is the most, uh, um, the most relevant difference between the two approaches and how I would use them. So to summarize, minimal API for a small microservice uh, that doesn't need uh, much uh, business logic activities. So it's basically pulling data, presenting data, pulling data, presenting data. And controllers, if we have uh, to uh, create a complex application with a, a, a relevant business logic activity, such as caching, uh, heavy uh, load balancing issues, uh, um, uh, strongly typed approach in terms of very complex uh, input data, which need uh, a complex structure, so a lot of uh, 
view models to uh, box to have it boxed in into strongly triplet properties and so on. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it answers it very well. Okay, <clears throat> it answers it very well. Um, it's one of those interesting things that sound more complex than it is when you're actually doing it. Yeah, uh, it's it's easy. It's uh, e it's easier to to do that than to explain that because uh, uh, minimal APIs has been explicitly designed to be fast to learn. This is another reason, in my opinion, why Microsoft invested a lot into that new approach because the competitors became very easy to use. Competitors such as Rust, such as Django such as Dart. So they needed uh, something that could be uh, learned very quickly. And minimal API is perfect because you don't have to uh, study how a controller works, how do you instantiate the controller services to be able to create to instantiate controllers, how you can use dependency injection to use the services within the controller, define the controller properties, use the controller properties. Oh, everything can be done can be do, uh, can be done in a single file, which is the same configuration file when you uh, basically bootstrap the application. So it's very quick as a startup. If you need to do a demonstration, a five minutes demonstration, minimal API, minimal API is perfect for that reason. Right. So but it's if you're building, yes, I didn't mean to interrupt you. If you're building a large enterprise application with hundreds of endpoints. Yeah. then I would argue that minimal API begins to become uh, more cumbersome and that having the oh. division of yeah, controllers yeah. can help a lot. Yeah, yeah, I think I honestly think so. But the, the best, the, the, the good thing about that is you can, you, you can use both. Even if it's not, uh, I, I wouldn't recommend that unless for teaching and demonstration purposes. In my application, in uh, the application we are we will build together within my book, uh, uses both minimal APIs for some simple, simple tasks, demonstrational tasks, and controller for the main uh, complex tasks of the web API. But uh, they can live together in the same application with absolutely no conflicts unless you use the, the same endpoints. Um, if you uh, care to split the endpoints, you can have some endpoints handled by minimal APIs and some endpoints handled by controllers. Uh, yes, if I try, having that uh, premise, if I try to, 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 to make complex stuff using minimal APIs, I probably will have more difficulties because I will be forced to create partial classes or to uh, separate the minimal API logic from the program CS file logic. So I will basically reconstruct the same structure the controller are there for. So why not use right. the controller <laughs> in right. the first place? So this begs the question then, if we have controller-based APIs and we have minimal APIs, where do Azure functions fit in in that picture? Mm, they, they are completely uh, working in bot uh, scenario. We we, we we can you, we can use a bot without issues. They do, they does not conflict and they, they do not conflict and they can use uh, uh, together with no problem. So okay. they they fit in just like uh, always. Okay. Everything is the, the good the good the good thing the good thing about the ASP.NET Core ecosystem is the fact that every 
single brick is meant to work with all the others. There is no uh, such thing as if you use this, you are locked out from that. Everything can work together as long as uh, you use everything which is designed to do that part of the job and the job, the job doesn't conflict. So yes, you can use bots without... Uh... Now we have, we have uh, in the application I'm working on, yeah. we have controller-based APIs and we have minimal APIs and they both have endpoints, but we also have uh, trigger-based uh, code where under a condition, it will fire off uh, an Azure function to do some work, okay. uh, typically in a microservice. How does, how does that fit together with what you're describing? Uh, for, um, for example, you can uh, activate the trigger from an, HP, an HTTP request, for example, to make an example. You can do that from the controller and you can do that for the minimal API because the uh, rotely 95%, if I recall correctly, I go with memory, so I may be, I may be wrong, but Microsoft claimed that uh, more than 90% of the functionalities of the controller approach functionalities, which is the most uh, complex and also most uh, um, compatible um, technology they have to handle HTTP calls, is, compati is, a compatible, is a doable with minimal APIs. So we have dependency injections, so we can inject service as much as, as we can. We have all the HTTP response types available. We can uh, instantiate uh, classes and call, uh, for example, ORM to fetch data from a database. We can call Azure functions, no problem. So the trigger, we can maybe activated the trigger for a minimal API, which is a perfect way of using a minimal API because it's a minimal activity. The, the, the name helps us to uh, identify the type of the task the minimal API is perfect to uh, handle. Minimal activity, microservice-like activity. While the controller mm, typically is used when the business logic tends to increase the overall activity of the business logic that tends to increase. I'm going to switch subjects on you slightly and talk about tools. Uh, the two tools that are often used for testing your API yeah. and for understanding your API mm -hmm. are Swagger and Postman. Swagger and, and Postman. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how each one of those is used in the development process and in uh, building the APIs? Yeah, um, uh, when we talk about, um, first of all, let's try to briefly introduce the concept of Swagger and Postman for the listeners who maybe don't know them. It, they are very famous and very used, but maybe someone doesn't know them. So let's try to sum quickly summarize what they are for. Basically, Postman is a testing framework, a client-side testing framework that can mimic the behavior of most client, most uh, RESTful based, based and swap-based client uh, to uh, call, consume APIs of various kinds and see the outcome. We, uh, it's typically used as a testing platform, but in reality, it's just about a client. It, it does just about anything a client does. It's very configurable, so it's like having a client that we can perfectly config, pinpoint configure. We can choose what to send so we can test which we receive. This is Postman, basically. So it's the client we need to communicate with without having to program it. This is perfect when we are 
developing a web API because we don't have to bother about creating a testing client. There is Postman for that. We can use Postman. Postman is our, it will be our testing client. Swagger, on the other hand, is a um, documentation standard mostly. So it's a way to document the API. As we know, with um, probably most of all know, one of the restful principles is the standardization of documentation. The fact that we need to document our API because the client uh, sh should be able to learn how to use the API using the API itself. So Swagger is a way to do that, is a way to instruct the client uh, the machine, if the client is uh, intelligent enough to, to uh, consume this documentation together with the API itself, or the human being behind the client, because uh, the, API, uh, the API can be uh, documented, is documented in real time while we are building it. Uh, there is a um, library, a NuGet library that we are using in, our, in my book, which is uh, Swashbuckle. I hope to spell that correctly, Swashbuckle, it should be, which is the um, ASNET Core, uh, ASP Core uh, implementation of Swagger. So basically using Swashbuckle, we have available some, um, um, uh, so various ways, several ways um, uh, to um, uh, decorate our methods. I'm uh, talking about uh, arguments. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about attributes, data attributes that we can use to seamlessly document, uh, uh, decorate our methods, our endpoints and API methods, action methods, if you are using controller, minimal API methods, if we use minimal API. And the Swashbuckle produces the swagger.json file, which is which contains the whole documentation of our API. So we can uh, use a textual description. We can use uh, um, uh, type definition for each of the object we need to receive in the input. So we can guide the client and the human being behind the client to understand how to consume, how to correctly consume the API, uh, uh, what, is, uh, what each endpoint is there for, and their meaning, we can split them. It's very convenient to use. Furthermore, and this is where, so we can say that Postman, we could say that Postman and Swagger are complement each other because one is a client that can be used to actively test the API and one is a documentation system which can be used to understand how to use the API. On top of that, Swashbuckle offers a, a testing client framework itself because the documentation is interactive. It includes a client within it so we can use it instead of Postman. In fact, as a matter of fact, in my book, I scarcely use Postman, as we, we will, uh, you, you will have seen by yourself since you are uh, <laughs> finished read it, uh, reading it. Uh, we don't use Postman because we uh, can uh, just use the Swashbuckle client, Swagger client, which is embedded into the documentation itself. So, uh, because it's um, conversely that Postman, which must be config manually configured to use our API, this is automatically designed to respect the interface of each endpoint. So it's 
just like developing a testing client just for that web API. Yes. I hope, I hope to <laughs> have answered it correctly to your question. No, you have, and it's very clear. And uh, we've, we've looked at a, a good bit of what you cover, although you cover a lot more. You cover uh, CRUD operations as the back end to, to the API and data validation. Um, you, you spend a whole chapter on application logging, which I found very interesting and useful for setting up a solid logging. You had a whole chapter on caching which uh, is an interesting question when you're building APIs, wh whether there should be caching, where the caching should be. Should it be client-side, server-side? Not at all. Should it be stateful or stateless? Uh, that brings us into the, uh, uh, the question of um, uh, stateful uh, APIs on the server and when to do that and when not. And I think you know you do a nice job introducing that. One of the things that you tackle that is very difficult for a lot of folks is authorization and authentication. And, and can you talk just briefly about how that fits into the, to the uh, API ecosystem that you're describing? Yeah, absolutely. This is an advanced topic, which is very requested by readers. All of my books have an authorization and uh, authentication uh, chapter, because uh, as we know, whenever you are developing a website or a web API or any web application, you most likely need some kind, some sort of authentication and authorization, because you don't uh, want to uh, have anonymous users to be able to access your data or even worse, modifying it, updating it, deleting it. So if you are uh, uh, um, implementing a crude operation, like you, you told a, a moment ago, you most likely need authorization and authentication. Uh, in my chapters, the first thing I always do is to clarify the difference between the two concepts. I'm, it is a rather concept, uh, complex topic, and I don't want to simply to have it simplified here. So I suggest the, the listeners to read that chapter with uh, uh, very carefully, because uh, uh, understanding the difference of the roles, the authorization workflow and the authentication workflow is the key to uh, avoid the most common pitfalls we have when implementing them. Uh, which is a very important. And I always uh, put my hand um, in advance. I don't know how to say in English, but uh, I warn the reader every time before starting coding authorization and authentication capabilities uh, because you uh, never put enough attention to them. The authorization and authentication is an ever-growing feature, is an ongoing feature. Once you start implementing that, you rarely stop. It is a process because new standards come on and you need to use them. Uh, old standards become obsolete or even worse, get hacked, like, for example, TLS 1.0 or SSL. So you need to be on the verge of what happens and promptly react to what happens sometimes even anticipate what is going to happen, such a loss of support of some tools or standard or best practice we are used to adopt and modify, refactor the code accordingly. This is the most critical part of 
any application in terms of security. If you have read uh, my book, you know that I love to call my approach a security-based approach. So uh, in other words, security is the most important aspect that we need to consider when developing any type of web application. We always need to think, what if someone tries to access this data or this controller or this endpoint without the required authorization, which is uh, which countermeasure I adopt to uh, block him to do that. This is the mindset I try to transmit when writing my book, and I think that is very important. That said, uh, let's delve into the specific question. We are very lucky when we are working with uh, ASP .NET because the .NET framework has the identity framework and the authorization framework, the authentication interface that can be used. Okay, we can leverage, uh, is a solid base that we can leverage, we can use to build our own authentication and authorization system. All we need to do to uh, prepare the base layer, the base security layer that we can use as a solid ground to build our authentication and authorization system is to learn how to integrate our application with them. So if we use, we, we, what is the advantage of using a proven fr security framework, authentication and authorization framework instead of developing our own? Is the fact that this process, which uh, I've, talked, I've talked about, which uh, this ongoing process um, is made by Microsoft. We can benefit. We can benefit of their work because they will update. They will keep them uh, those services updated for us. So they will fix on the low level, of course, all the pitfall and the um, obsolescence and the um, bugs and the security flaws that. Uh, will um, get discovered in the upcoming years, even after we uh, finished developing our application. We just have to keep those services, those libraries, those packages updated. So we have a low-level solid ground that we can use to build our authorization and authentication module. Once we do that, once we integrate that part, and my book explains pretty well how to do it, it's quite, a bit, quite simple, for, uh, luckily enough, to do that. We can use that framework using its uh, uh, attributes. It's an attribute-based system, so all we, ne we need to do, the most thing, the most uh, relevant part of the job is to use the correct attrib authorization attributes to the methods so we can define the roles if we, if we want to use roles or we can use the usernames or we can use the groups security groups we can um, use various uh, approaches to define the security perimeters of our application but if we stick to these rules we will all we will have a always updated um, module that um, limits a lot the error margin that we can put uh, into the code. Of course, uh, this works only if and only if we can understand. We are able to understand 
how this system works under the hood. And this is the most critical part of my uh, chapter. I spend more or, or, or more than half of the length of that chapter to explain how the ASP, the .NET identity system works under the hood to make the developer able to responsibly use it because he doesn't have to sit on it. He has to implement on it while knowing how it works because, because this is the only way to avoid getting hacked. Yes, thank you. That was, um, that was an excellent explanation and you do a good bit of detail in the book on this. Before we stop, I we have been making the assumption uh, that what we're building is using REST. And I think the vast majority of us will be using REST, but GraphQL is making a, a, a surprising amount of uh, attention and attraction because it can tremendously reduce the number of round trips when you want to get uh, filtered data. Can you talk a little bit about the advantages of GraphQL and why you would or would not use it on any given API? Yes. So uh, GraphQL, yeah, um, this is an emerging, um, we, 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 it's not even more an emerging technology because it's, it's here since years and there are, there are thousands if not tens of thousands of websites actively using it. So um, we can just say it's a recent, recent technology and very promising, interesting technology uh, that uh, uh, posits itself as an alternative of REST. Uh, and it has been developed to uh, address some uh, common, commonly, um, commonly acknowledged uh, REST drawbacks such as the one you anticipated, uh, overfetching, uh, underfetching, uh, the abundance of uh, um, HTTP calls to obtain what we want. Typically, in a REST application, if we want to reach the data of a specific uh, product, for example, if we are talking about an e-commerce, we need to query the list of product, then filter the list of product, try to uh, find the category of the product we know our product is in there, then uh, perform another query, get the list of product of that category, fetch the filter that category. And then finally, we can obtain the ID of the product we, we need to um, retrieve and then perform an additional query. Uh, when I, I talk about query, but uh, I'm uh, actually uh, referencing to HTTP calls because uh, each query in REST needs to be performed using a different HTTP call. Of course, there are the um, workarounds that you can use with REST to ease that process, but um, often they are not worth that because they add more complexity uh, and issues that uh, what they fix. For example, they require a lot. We can prefetch, preload a lot of data so that we can able to uh, respond with a lot of data in advance, hoping to uh, give to the client immediately what he is really asking for. But this is called overfetching. Most of the time, we the client doesn't need that much data, and so and so we are presenting it a lot of useless data, which is useless uh, wasted bandwidth. And um, 
uh, raises uh, lowers the performance or the overall performance or of our uh, web API. This can be acceptable if the web API is balanced enough, is powerful enough to and to uh, withstand the amount of calls it receives. But it receives. But uh, in uh, nowadays, mobile apps, uh, cars, uh, Internet of Things services, uh, most web APIs receives billions of calls in a minute, in a day, in an hour. So the rate uh, is uh, so high that we need to find a way to reduce the uh, waste, uh, the overall waste. And being able to limit, minimize the overfetching uh, issue and the underfetching issue, which forces to perform additional queries in terms of HTTP calls to obtain what we need, becomes very crucial. This is the reason why alternatives such as GraphQL have been introduced. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, we um, we can imagine the, the, the best uh, thing we can do to explain briefly uh, what GraphQL is actually is uh, is presenting it like a way to uh, perform creative queries, uh, dynamic queries to the endpoint. Um, uh, to um, instruct the endpoint to uh, send us exactly the data we need. So it's not just uh, communicating some uh, um, IDs or some category IDs, product IDs, or some uh, text-based filters, but it's about communicating whole queries. Just like, a data, just like we do with a standard database. This query, of course, doesn't get directly translated into the database because that uh, would be, a, um, uh, would be um, uh, very risky in terms of possible injections, but gets interpreted by, gets handled by a, an engine, an internal engine, which is installed, which is a service. Uh, instantiated in, inside the application, which uh, understand that queries and translates it into actual calls to the or uh, underlying ORM or other uh, data fetching tool that we use to actually fetch data from the database. And then um, uh, uh, giving it back, uh, uh, responding it back to the client using only the requested data. This is basically how it works. Of course, the amount of complexity in terms of what the server needs to do uh, increases because REST is just uh, you, uh, you have what you get. It's uh, very quick in terms of understanding. The, the system doesn't uh, have much uh, work to understand what the client uh, is asking for because the requests are typically very simple. The data, the custom data we use when uh, performing a REST call are typically uh, in JSON format and are quite limited in terms of properties. We can have 10, 20, 30 properties at most in uh, the vast majority of cases. Sometimes we just have one or two parameters to communicate with the server, for example, the product ID. In GraphQL, we can 
the, 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 um, the, the, the possibilities are endless because we transmit queries. So we can uh, ask for the third item which has the name starting with my and has been inserted not before two years ago. We can create a structured query uh, that will get int we will have to get interpreted by the receiving service, the web API, the web API itself. Uh, luckily, these uh, all these uh, complex task of interpreting the query, which is uh, written in a standardized format, documented by the GraphQL standard. Uh, the, the hard part of this job is handled by one of the NuGet, uh, many NuGet packages available. Uh, freely on the um, Microsoft Marketplace that we can integrate in our web uh, application or web API. In my web API, uh, chapter 11 or 10, no, chapter, chapter 10 of my book, I use hot chocolate, which is my, in my opinion is phenomenal because it supports all the GraphQL syntax, the most common GraphQL syntax, and natively supports Entity Framework Core, which is the uh, which is the official uh, Microsoft uh, ORM uh, um, uh, service which we are using in the book. So it's uh, very easy; it's quite easy to uh, implement uh, the receiver, which receives the query from the client, and the um, uh, the method that interprets the request and produce the output using Entity Framework Core to to fetch the requested data. Um, to the database. So that raises the question of why would you not always use that rather than REST? Why, why not stay with GraphQL? Well, uh, well although GraphQL has uh, a lot of advantages over traditional REST, uh, there are also some um, drawbacks, shortcomings. Um, to summarize, to quickly sum, in my book, I summarize that drawbacks into three categories, caching, performance, and complexity. We already introduced the last of them, the complexity. Um, rest, was, rest is easy to learn, is easy to implement, and has a lot, comes with a lot of community support because we have billions of websites using rest. It has a... Um, it is uh, HTTP-based, so uh, it's uh, something that we are already used to know if we are already in the loop of the program web programming. Conversely, uh, GraphQL uh, has a few support, uh, especially if you are forced or uh, end up using the um, uh, NuGet packages we were talking about, uh, which uh, has, are adopted by a very limited community in terms of numbers, and you need to study, to actively study how they work. You, you, you can't uh, simply uh, throw them inside your application, connect them with the entity framework, and hope everything will go well, because you will have a lot of issues. Uh, to fix. And the only way to fix those issues, in the, cha in the chapter 10 of my book, uh, we will address some of them while using uh, the, that uh, library, uh, Hot Chocolate. Uh, you will only, only be able to uh, withstand uh, these complexity issues if you study 
how GraphQL works and how this, this implementation of GraphQL actually works. Their limitation, their drawbacks, their uh, not still supported uh, features and so on. For example, one of the most critical uh, issues we had to deal with in chapter 10 I don't want to spoil anything to the reader, but we will have a, a multi-thread issue because we will have a conflict we will encounter in mid part of the, uh, the chapter in a concurrency issues between the GraphQL and underlying engine and the uh, ASP.NET Core architecture of our application. And so we will have two um, implement manually implement some workarounds to make them able to work together in a seamless way. So basically, this is the complexity. Then there are there is caching problem. Um, the, 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 uh, as we explain in, within the book, REST can leverage uh, can benefit of all the caching feature and capabilities provided by the HTTP protocol, uh, while GraphQL uh, comes with no native caching support. Uh, this basically means that we will have to either implement some caching support manually with all the difficulties and the amount of complexity that uh, it can mean, or to use uh, the solution provided by some third parties. And then uh, we come back to the, to the issue that I have I, 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 just explained. We need to learn how it works and address the most common issues we might encounter. Finally, last but not least, there is the performance uh, performance issues. Uh, yeah, uh, REST, we know that REST has some performance uh, problems, such as overfetching and underfetching. But uh, we need to assess how much these performance issue, uh, issues really affect our web API. If we have a web API uh, which uh, transmits uh, a little, a small amount of data, maybe the overfetching is not a problem. Maybe the underfetching and the uh, requirement of multiple HTTP calls to retrieve what we really want is not really an issue. So we, we should assess the problem in our specific uh, scenario before actually talk about performance issues of REST. Conversely, GraphQL, uh, although his uh, uh, whole purpose is to be more efficient, the underlying engine is very complex and requires some additional overhead. Um, the, the, and then there is another aspect, important aspect to consider that I, I reference in my book. Uh, since we, had, we are delegating the, the query building to the client, we give the power to the client to, to perform some very potentially very complex queries which is, uh, might, be, might be something that we might want to avoid because uh, we can't uh, really expect the client to uh, actively study how to op perform optimistic, uh, optimized query to our uh, web API. Maybe they won't uh, undergo, uh, they want to do that uh, type of analysis and just ask data in a non-optimized way. So we need to ensure using caching, using a efficient translation mechanism uh, from the client query to the actual database query that those in potentially inefficient queries will get translated into efficient 
queries. Otherwise, we risk to increase the performance issues of our web APIs instead of decrease uh, them. Well, I can't thank you enough. This was a terrific introduction based on a terrific book, uh, Building Web APIs with ASP.NET Core from Manning. I will put a uh, link on the show notes to the book. I want to thank you because the book really taught me a lot quickly. And uh, I appreciate your coming on and talking with us. And hopefully we'll have you on again soon to talk about your uh, revision as, as .NET moves forward and also as uh, AI becomes more of a component in building these, perhaps we can have another conversation about how you can integrate that into this process. I will be very, very happy to do that because I feel those are uh, topics we really need to talk about. Great, well, thank you again. Thank to you, Jesse.